seat. Good morning. <laughs> it is a good morning indeed. Welcome to the Vineyard. My name is Jeff, if I haven't already met you. Uh, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and I want to give a special welcome also to those of you who are joining us online. We are uh, really glad that you decided to tune in uh, whenever and wherever you decided to watch. You know, we have live stream, which is really cool, but then you can go back and you can watch it or you can listen to it on the podcast. So whenever and wherever you are, we're glad that you're here. Uh, so today, it, Pastor Joe talked about it this morning, it is a big, big day here at the Vineyard. We've been talking about November 22nd for some time, and um, you know, Pulse is off tonight, but things are still happening, right? How special was it to have the child dedications this morning? How special was it to have baptisms? How special is it to gather together and worship together? You know what we call that? We call it church. And it's good to do that. It's good to do that with you. It's good to be together today. We're excited to, to take the groceries into the community this afternoon, 3 o'clock here at the church. We're just excited to see what God is up to and how God is on the move and the kingdom is moving forward. Well, this morning, we are in a series that I am calling in my own head, uh, this is not a series because it's not. Um, we've been doing one-offs here and there, and it's been a fun and interesting experience just to kind of see what God has been laying on um, the hearts of people who come up and, and speak. And, uh, you know, Pastor Janice said a similar thing to this last week when she spoke, that it wasn't the message she was planning on giving. Um, I was going to try to make it something about Thanksgiving, and if you were expecting that this morning, uh, I hope you're not disappointed because that's not the direction that the Lord decided to take it. Um, nevertheless, here we are today. Uh, I want to read to you out of the book of First Peter. We're going to have it up on the screen. Um, I'm going to read the scripture, then I'm going to give you a little bit of background and context about what Peter's writing about. So, up on the screen, we're going to have First Peter 5, verses 6 through 11. Here's what it says. It says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. All right, so where we're at today is actually at the very end of Peter's letter, and context is really, really important all the time. Uh, so I want to just paint a picture of what Peter's writing about and who Peter is writing to. So this letter, unlike a lot of the epistles in the New Testament, uh, is written by a person. It's named after a person. It's named after First Peter. Uh, you know, Paul writes epistles and, and they'll be called uh, Romans or 1st Corinthians or 2nd Corinthians or Ephesians because he's writing to people in that area. But Peter's actually writing to a bunch of different people spread out in a bunch of different places. And this is what they called a uh, circular letter where it would go out and it can make its way around to different people, but it's applicable for everybody no matter where they're at. And, um, and, and the overarching themes of Peter's letter are about a living hope in Jesus Christ, which is imperishable and incorruptible. It's about the new identity of God's people who are rejected by men, but loved and accepted by God and called to holy and righteous living. God's redemptive use of suffering as a witness to Jesus and the future hope of the people of God. And so as you read Peter's letter, it reminds us just of the tension 
of living uh, the Christian life, right? That we are called to a radical holiness, even in the midst of radical and brutal persecution. We are called to live as a people who are different. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation unto God. And it's, it's better, Peter says, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. Peter isn't fixated and focused on a present solution to present problems, but on the fact that we are able to persevere through present problems because of a present living hope in a future eternal glory in Christ. So this kind of brings into perspective the anxieties or the cares that Peter's talking about in verse 7. It can be a hard thing, a stressful thing, a taxing and an anxiety-inducing thing to live this Christian life, to live out the tension of everything that God has called us to be and the world that we live in. It is, it is hard to live holy, to put off your former self, to continue to grow into maturity in Christ, to act honorably, to be submissive to authority, especially authority which in their case was unjust, and on top of that, to suffer for the name of Jesus and still endure. That's hard. And right before we get into today's text, Peter is uh, encouraging the elders in each congregation to shepherd the flock. In other words, take care of the people that God has entrusted you with, with willingness over compulsion, with a genuine desire over the desire to gain from any kind of leadership position, and by being examples instead of domineering and just telling people what to do, but not then doing it themselves. He is encouraging the church at this point in the letter to get along with each other. As you read through the book of 1 Peter, you see at the very beginning, Peter talks about we're at peace with God. You know, you have a new identity in Christ and you're at peace with God. And so then out of that, he encourages the, the, the readers of his letters to live peaceably then in the world. And then finally at the end, live peaceably with each other. Peter uses a famous quote, which James also uh, uses, which we studied the book of James earlier this year. He says, um, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And he uses this quote by bookending it by saying, clothe yourselves with humility because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So then humble yourselves. Uh, from a literary point of view, he's saying, do this, here's why, now do it. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not the biggest fan of because I said so or because that's what we do. Um, I'm a bit of a why person. Every, every job I've ever had, if there's a rule, I'm happy to, I'm happy to, uh, to, to live it out, to, to abide by that rule, but I want to know why it's there. I want to know what's the thinking behind this, and then I can uh, complain about it later. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't complain about it. But, um, but I love Peter for giving us the why here right? He, he says, be humble around each other because God will oppose the proud, but he'll give grace to the humble. And don't you need grace to persevere? Don't you need grace to get along with each other? Don't you need grace to do this thing called the Christian life? Okay, right. So then be humble. So we choose humility. And if you're taking notes here in the building, if you're taking notes at home, I want to encourage you. This is going to be my first point today. Humility is an invitation to receive grace. Okay? It's basically right what, right what the text says right there. It says God gives grace to the humble. God's grace is promised to those who will humble themselves. Now, you've probably heard this before, so I'm not going to blow your mind or anything this morning, but grace is oftentimes translated as being favor. 
And I think sometimes we have to change our mindset just a little bit about what favor means because we tend to think of favoritism. Uh, It was my birthday this past week and I eat at Chipotle every year on my birthday because it's my favorite restaurant or I watch my favorite movies or I listen to my favorite band. But um, this kind of favor is something different. A few years ago, I was um, out kicking a soccer ball at Lake Reba. Uh, As I do by myself, I chase it around. I'm part dog. I love to just run and chase things. Um, And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I go to kick the ball like I normally do, and I just hear this pop. And I knew right then and there that I had had done something to my ankle. Uh, So a friend of mine dragged me to the ER, and I paid them way too much money to give me an x-ray and say, yes, your ankle is sprained. Here's a pair of crutches. Now do rice, right? Rest, ice, compression, elevation. So that's what I did. But here's the point. I favored my sprained ankle, right? I gave it the things that it needed to heal. I gave it a special treatment and special care, not because it was my stronger ankle, but precisely because it was my weaker ankle. And that's what grace is, friends. Grace is God helping us because he sees how weak we are, he sees how hurt we are, he sees how broken we are, and he wants to help us walk. He wants to help us do what we're not able to do on our own. Um, One of the most anti-gospel things I've ever heard in my life is this idea that God helps those who help themselves, right? That is hogwash. That is anti-gospel 100% because the whole point of the gospel is God helping people who cannot help themselves, right? Jesus healed people who couldn't heal themselves. He gave sight to people who couldn't see. He raised people from the dead who weren't able to raise themselves from the dead. God saves people who can't save themselves. That is the whole point, and that's what grace is all about. But pride is just denying your inability. It is, it is moving past that thought and saying, no, I know that most people don't have it together, but I do. I know what I'm doing. I know that I can figure this out. I can do it. Uh, you know, people who are smarter than I am could, could explain this and explain the science behind it, but apparently it's pretty common practice in professional sports for athletes to play through injuries and they'll just pop painkillers before the game and they don't feel the injury and they're able to go play. Well, we as fans and commentators are like, man, what toughness. They play through the injury. But in reality, when you just numb the pain and continue to to move on that injured bone or muscle or whatever it is, you're actually just making it worse because where it needs to stop and rest and heal, you're just shoving the pain down and you're moving on. And it's just like that when we try to live without grace. Because friends, we are made in the image of God and we are made to live in community with God and in communion and communication with God. So don't just suck it up, right? Don't just go it alone. Don't say, I've got this. Peter's saying, humble yourselves. Listen to people who might know better than you. Listen to other people who have been through a thing or two. Listen to other people who are even in your boat with you. And at the right time, Peter says, God will exalt you. He will lift you up. Now, at this point, Peter mentions casting your cares upon God. And I think that a lot of times um, we, we hear this verse, we hear this phrase, casting your cares upon God or cast your cares upon God. And we treat it like, um, like we've got a rock or something in our hand and we're just going to chuck that thing into the ocean of God's grace. And that is, I think, totally accurate. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that um, way of looking at it. 
that, that God is like a, like a truck and we can just load up our stuff and we can give him our stuff and he's going to take it away and he's going to deal with it. I don't think that's wrong by any means. Uh, you know, Philippians 4, 6, Paul says, don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, there's going to be your thanksgiving plug this week, uh, let your requests be made known to God. And a supplication is just bringing a need or a request specifically to God. So that's all well and good, but I couldn't help but notice something as I was reading and as I was studying this passage. Depending on which translation you use, and I'm not going to get into why you should use certain translations. I don't have super strong opinions on that right now. But I noticed that some translations end verse 6 in a period, right? So it says, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. In due time, he will exalt you. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. But in mine, and I use an ESV, um, and mine, verse 6 actually ends in a comma, and so it's a continuous thought. It's a continuous process that you humble yourself under the hand of God. And just at the right time, he's going to lift you out. And it's casting cares upon him. It doesn't say anything about me casting my cares. It just says that's kind of what's going to happen when God lifts you up. And so I just want to suggest this morning that maybe as we behold God, as we look upon him, as we, as we experience him and encounter him, something happens to our anxiety. Something happens to our cares and our worries and the things that we carry around with us, and they just fall off. They're cast upon God. There's, a, there's an old hymn that says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim." in the light of his glory and grace. And Paul says this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians uh, 3, verse 18. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding or looking upon or gazing upon the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So something happens when we encounter the Lord. Something happens when we see him at work. Something happens when we hear his voice. It's just like that last song we sang this morning. The moment that we see you, we are changed. And so we ask God, show us your glory. And at this point in the text, Peter finds it important to point out specifically, he takes a pause to say this, because God cares for you. I love that. Please don't miss this. The reason that God will take our anxieties upon himself, the reason that we are invited to cast every care upon to God is because he cares for you. So let me ask you, let me ask those of you who are joining us online, what are you going through right now? What are you worried about right now? Are you worried about where your next paycheck is going to come from? Are you worried about your health? Are you worried about your family? God cares for you. Are you worried about your marriage? Are you worried about your kids? Are you worried about someone else who's near and dear to you? God cares for you. Are you struggling with your job? Are you struggling spiritually and you feel like you just can't seem to, to, to make any progress or make any momentum? God cares for you. If you hear nothing else from me today, I want you to hear that God cares for you. And we know that God cares for us because of the coming of Jesus Christ. Paul says that he is the image of the invisible God. And Jesus said he came to show the Father. We know that God cares because he sent his only son. 
And I know that sometimes that can feel like a platitude, right? How's that going to help me? How's it going to help me that Jesus came to earth and he, and he, and he lived a perfect life and he died? And that, that's all well and good, but that has that helped me right now. Well, can I tell you this? Taking heart in God's care for you, it doesn't mean that you have to be jumping up and down and doing cartwheels next to a loved one on their deathbed right? Taking heart in God's care for you doesn't mean that you have to cheer hallelujah when you log into your banking app and you see that you only have five bucks left, okay? It means that we can do, we can rejoice in Christ despite what's going on, but it doesn't mean that your suffering isn't suffering, and no one is going to say shame on you for having a worry or having a care or having an anxiety, but you need to know that God cares for you, no matter what's going on. And Peter reminds us, going through hard times is not an excuse for us to abandon our post and to give up on God. This is what he says in 1 Peter 4.19. He says, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator, don't miss this, while doing good. Okay? So going through hard things doesn't give us an excuse to stop obeying the commands of Jesus. It doesn't give us an excuse to stop moving forward. So the question is, which way are your feet pointing in the midst of your suffering? You know, this morning, one of the, one of the five like, drafts of sermons that I wrote that I had to trash because I just couldn't make it work, I was going to preach about Job. And I just want to say a thing or two about Job at this point this morning. Uh, you know, if you're not familiar with the story of Job, I encourage you to check it out. The story itself really is only three chapters long. It's chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 42. Everything in between is kind of, uh, it's, it's philosophy. The Bible calls it wisdom literature. Uh, and there's a lot that we can learn in there. But if you don't know the story of Job, Job was the guy who was the best of the best. He was faithful. He was upright. He was steadfast. He was righteous. And then one day, he loses everything. Every one of his servants was dead. Every one of his livestock, which was kind of your wealth back in the day, dead. His kids were all together at their brother's house eating dinner, and the house blew in, and all of his children died. The only loved one that he had left, the only member of his immediate family that he had left was his wife. And his wife says, what are you doing? Why do you, why do you still hang on to your integrity? Why don't you just curse God and die? And this is what Job said. He said, you speak like one of the foolish women. He said, should we receive good from God and not also receive evil? And I want to point out, he doesn't say we receive good from God and we receive evil from God. He's saying, I'll, I'll receive good things from God, but that doesn't mean that bad things aren't going to happen to me. You know, when you take your vows, when you get married, you promise to stick with your spouse in what? Sickness and health, in richer and poorer. And so it's not an excuse to give up. So what did Job do? What was Job like? Well, Job suffered. You can read about it, verse, or chapters 3 all the way through, uh, I think 38 is where he stops complaining and God shows up. Um, but he complained. He complained a lot. He didn't understand. He didn't pretend to understand. He said, I, I wish I knew what was going on. But God doesn't come along and say, Job, suck it up. In fact, God says at the end of Job's story that Job was the one person out of Job's three friends and Job, Job was the one person who spoke rightly about God. 
And Job says this about halfway through the book. He says, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. So how did Job suffer? He sits there and he goes, this is the worst. It's not fun. It's not, it doesn't make any sense. I wish I understood why it was happening. I wish that God would come down here right now and tell me why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing. But nevertheless, I know that my Redeemer lives. And I know that one day I'm going to see him. And it's going to be a day after my body's been destroyed, after I'm dead. But I'm going to be okay. And I'm going to see God one day. And then he says, and I love this, he says, my heart faints within me. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I want to quit. And this is what Peter is talking about when he says, we suffer now for a little while, but after a little while, one day we're going to see God who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ, and we will be strengthened and confirmed and established and restored. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So, hoping in the Lord doesn't mean that suffering isn't suffering. But it means you'll be okay because God is for you. Paul writes, if God is for us, who could possibly be against us? David wrote in Psalm 56 verse 9, he says, oh, which was written, by the way, as he was being captured by Philistines who were his enemies. He writes, this much I know that God is for me. See, we have to have this understanding that, that the writers of the Bible had, which is this. Suffering has no bearing whatsoever on God's goodness. It has no bearing on his faithfulness. It has no bearing on his sovereignty. It has no bearing on his love for you just because you go through a hard time. Suffering doesn't change the fact that God is for you. In fact, in a weird kind of paradoxical way that I can't even explain, it almost seems to highlight it. Did you know that every person who penned scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the temporary nature of suffering and the eternal nature of God, every person who wrote about that experienced it themselves, right? Peter was not sitting in a little cabin in the woods sipping his tea and writing these nice platitudes about God. No, Peter was thrown in jail. Peter was beaten. Eventually, Peter was crucified upside down. Paul just read 2 Corinthians, uh, I think it's chapter 11, talks about everything he went through. He was whipped, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was thrown in jail multiple times. And David was captured by his enemies. He couldn't seem to hold his family together. He made really bad choices at various points in his life. But they all knew the same thing, that God was good and God was not the enemy. Just because they were struggling, God is not the enemy. But if you want to know the truth, you do have an enemy. And it's important to remember this. You do have an enemy. And we could probably spend a lot more time here. And I'm going to have to kind of work through it pretty quick. But Peter reminds the readers here, your adversary, the devil. Okay? Stop right there. Your adversary is the devil. It's not God. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids, 
It's not your coworker that you can't get along with. It's not your boss. It's not people on the other side of the political aisle from you. It's the devil. And what he does is he prowls around like a roaring lion because he's looking for someone to devour. In John chapter 10, Jesus talks about the enemy. The enemy came to kill, not just to injure. He came to steal, not just to borrow or to hide or to relocate something from you. And he came to destroy, not just cause a little bit of damage. It's important that we remember this. Sometimes we get this image of the devil as a mischievous little thing who's trying to take our parking spot at Walmart, or he's trying to cut us off in traffic, or he's trying to make our cell phone battery die, or he's trying to make us spill our coffee on ourselves. But that is not the nature of the devil. I hate to break it to you. But the devil is sinister. He is looking to destroy you. He's looking to steal from you. He's looking to kill you. Notice that he says that the enemy prowls, right? When a lion prowls, you know what it's not trying to do? It's not trying to be noticed. It wants to lull its prey into this false sense of security until they get close enough where he can strike. The devil's not going to go around and jump out from behind things and be like, hi, I'm the devil. I'm here to destroy you. No, he's going he's gonna to make you want to mistake a lot of other things for being the enemy. This is why Peter says you have to be sober-minded. You have to be watchful because the enemy will use circumstances in your life like a difficult relationship or a past hurt or a desire that hasn't come to fruition or a difficult job or a failure or a time that you've missed the mark or an addiction or a rejection, anything he could possibly use and twist it to diminish your hope. When you are too discouraged or too tired or too confused or too frustrated to share your testimony or to pray or to worship or to open your Bible, that, friends, is exactly where the enemy wants you. But this is where God wants us. Ephesians 6, verses 11 through 13 say this, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. God wants you to be able to stand for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. This is where God wants us. He wants us standing firm. And we're able to do that because, as Peter says, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So this is my last point today. And I want you to know this. You are not alone. Hallelujah. You are not alone. Look, I really wish that there was more time to kind of get into the minutia of the specific types of suffering that people that Peter was writing to were experiencing. The one thing I know is that um, at this point in history, a lot of Peter's audience uh, would have faced the possibility of being burned alive because there was an emperor named Nero and he liked to take Christians and tie them up to a stake and burn them and they were his garden lights at night. I think if we're honest, if we're realistic, we don't face that kind of persecution. That's probably not going to happen. I don't think any of us are going to be involved in the White House Christmas display 
or the Frankfurt Christmas display this year. But that doesn't mean that we don't still have problems. That doesn't mean that we don't have cares and anxieties and worries that we can bring to God. That doesn't mean that this text doesn't apply to us. That doesn't mean that we don't have an enemy who wants to kill us and steal from us and destroy us. It doesn't make it magically easier to live at peace in the world and with each other. And can I say something controversial? America isn't heaven. (laughs) Okay? We have a different set of issues facing us as Christians in America in the year 2020 than the people that Peter was writing to. For example, I'm of the mind that it is a uniquely difficult task to stand out as the people of God and not to let our religious liberty lead to religious apathy. But just because our, our set of problems is different doesn't mean that God doesn't care and it doesn't mean that you're alone. The idea that you're alone is another tactic that the enemy wants to use to get you to give up. If the enemy can make you think that you're alone, then the enemy can make you think that no one else has ever experienced what you're going through right now. And if no one else has ever experienced what you're going through right now, then A, there's something wrong with you, and B, no one can possibly help you. And if no one can help you, then you've got to figure it out on your own, or you've got to give up. And that's where the enemy wants you. But you're not alone. And you're not crazy. I'm here to tell you, whatever you're going through today, You might be struggling and you might be hurting, but you're not crazy and you're not alone. You might need to change. You might need to listen to the Holy Spirit and repent, but you're not alone. You're not crazy. You might be sad. You might be mad, but you're not crazy and you're not alone. You are not the only person to deal with the things that you're dealing with right now. Let me put it in perspective for you. We live in the year 2020, which means that there have been thousands of years before us. And at any given time, there are billions of people alive across the planet. It is a statistical impossibility that you are the only person going through something that you're going through right now. You're not alone. And even if you were, there is at least one other who understands. This is what the Bible says about Jesus, our high priest. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We are going to transition to a time of worship and of ministry, and um, I want to invite you to pray this morning. If there's anything that you're going through, if there's anything you're worried about, if there's something you're stressed about, if you're just tired, if you're just exhausted, if you just feel weary from everything that's going on and feeling like you have to, uh, you know, G yourself up and get yourself uh, hyped up and motivated and you just need somebody, I want to encourage you, just go pray with somebody. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be that your life's falling apart. If you're tired, listen, I am, I am a thorough believer that, that God speaks to us through each other. And I have felt closer to God in a hug than a lot of things ever in my life before. So I just wanna encourage you, just say, hey, find someone out there praying and just say, hey, I'm just tired. 
I'm just weary. I'm just having a hard time being happy right now. I'm just having a hard time getting excited about anything right now. Can you just pray with me? Can you just help me know that I'm not alone? We would love to do that with you. Those of you who are joining us online, we have real people who are ready to chat with you. If you go to vineyardrichmond.com, look for the little prayer chat button. It's in the bottom right-hand corner. These are real people. They would love to just pray with you and let you know that you are not alone. Listen, when the going gets tough, when things get hard, the enemy wants to get you by yourself. He wants to draw you away. He wants to make you think that your thing that you're dealing with is, is bigger than God can handle, is bigger than you can handle, and it's, it's too weird and too crazy, and you should, be, you should be embarrassed to tell anyone about it. But I'm here to tell you that it is exactly at that time where you need to press in. And I know what it's like. I know the voice that you hear in the back of your head that says, well, you just did this thing, so you can't go to God right now. You gotta give it some time. You gotta give time. You gotta give God a little time to forget. But this is exactly when we need to draw, in, draw near. This is when you need to press in. And I, just want, I just want you to remember. We're gonna pray and we're gonna worship, but I just want you to remember those five points today. Humility is an invitation to receive grace because God wants to give you grace. God cares for you. Your suffering, your struggles, your worries, whatever it is, has no bearing on God's goodness. You have an enemy, but you're not alone. We have each other to lean into in community, and we have an advocate. We have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. He is our advocate. We're not alone. Let's pray before we worship today. God of all grace, we just thank you. We just thank you that you don't leave us alone in our weakness. God, we thank you that there is no, no struggle that is too big for you. There is no struggle that is too obscure for you. There is nothing that has happened in all of human history that has ever surprised you. God, we're grateful that you know our names. We're grateful that you've appointed us to be here today. We're grateful that your grace never, ever, ever runs out. God, we're grateful that every day we're given new mercies. We're grateful that even when we sin, we have an advocate making intercession for us in the person of Jesus Christ. And we thank you, God, that through the cross, through the blood of Jesus Christ, we have forgiveness for our sins and we have redemption through his blood. So God, we come to you this morning a people in need from all over, from within the building, from online right now. God, we just come to you a people in desperate need of your grace because your grace is the only way that we can get by. And we need you this morning. So Holy Spirit, won't you, be, won't you be ministering to hearts right now? Won't you speak to people? Won't you meet them where they're at? Would you encourage? Would you strengthen? Would you, would you establish, confirm, and restore us by your grace this morning? We ask all this in the holy, precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen, church. Let's worship.